Welcome to the Austin Forum Upload, the podcast of the Austin Forum on technology and society. Every episode, we upload for you the expertise, insights, and opinions of thought leaders, innovators, and creators on topics at the intersection of technology and society. We'll cover pervasive and emerging technologies that are influencing and impacting our business, education, governments, research, and culture. I'm Jay. I'm Jessica. And I'm John. And we're the co-producers of the Austin Forum Upload. Welcome to the Austin Forum Upload, or in this case, I should say, welcome back. This is part two of a special episode on social media and its influence on society and political climate. And I'm very pleased to welcome back my guests from part one to go deeper into their opinions and insights and recommendations for how we move forward with social media in the future, considering everything we've seen happen here at the beginning of 2021. If you haven't checked out part one, we encourage you to do that. We talked about lots of the major social media platforms, not just in the US, but around the world and how some of these platforms have over 1 billion users on them. So they truly have broad national and global reaches and thus lots of influence. We recorded part one and we asked for feedback on that when we all shared it on our social media. And I'm very pleased to say we got some great feedback and we're gonna cover some of that today. And our panelists are gonna share their insights and thoughts on some of these issues. And again, we'll close with our experts' recommendations on what we should do going forward. So thank you for joining us. And with that, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Austin Forum Upload, Sherry Greenberg of the UTLBJ School of Public Affairs, Talia Stroud of the UT Moody College of Communications, and Paul O'Brien of MediaTek Ventures. Welcome back to the Austin Forum Upload. Great happy to be, to back, be back. Well, we're happy to have you. And with that, I want to jump right in to one of the uh, pieces of input we got after we shared the podcast. One of them was we made the comment that while it was totally legal for large social media companies that are privately held to make a decision about which accounts could be active and what they can say on their platform. We said that there's still freedom for anyone to start new platforms and to create new voices and opportunities for people to talk. We got some feedback that said that wasn't quite as cheap as you said it was. Paul, do you wanna respond to that real quick? And then I'd love for Tally and Sherry to chip in as well. Yeah, you bet, as, as, as I said it was. Indeed, I did suggest it was. There are, you know, think about the, the fact that, that social media has been around for a good couple of decades. This technology is not new. We've been working with it for a long time. And, and because of that, uh, the infrastructure is really inexpensive. Uh, what, what we're seeing today is a, a discussion of really two parts. Uh, the hosting and the infrastructure that's often turning off a lot of this stuff. Well, that infrastructure, that hosting infrastructure is cheap. Uh, dollars per month for something like Amazon Web Services. That's what social networks are built upon. And, and then we turn to, to software and content management systems. And a lot of that, that software is also uh, free or, or incredibly inexpensive, less than $49 to buy, for example. Uh, it's what we refer to in a lot of cases as open source. We just plug in a, a social network experience to a website and boom, we're live with our own version of Facebook, our own version of Twitter. So it is cheap in that context, but it certainly takes a lot to create the audience that you see on some of these platforms and some of these sites. But were we to desire to create alternatives or do we need to be aware of the fact that alternatives can easily exist? Yes, it's, it's pretty easy to do. Uh, it doesn't take a lot to, to stand up a, a different version of, of what we're talking about today. 
and do something else with it and explore whether or not that something else is legal or right or wrong uh, and just continue to perpetuate the kind of conversations that we're having here now about what do we do about the fact that this is a part of uh, the reality and the fabric of the internet. I agree, Paul, that there's a lot of infrastructure out there that allows you to build your own social network. I think a lot of it depends on what you get out of it. So if you're going to social media to connect with friends and family and have a kind of closed network that you enjoy the experience of chatting with them, there are all sorts of options. So I'm thinking about like Darius Kazimi has uh, a site called runyourown.social. And it literally is instructions for how you set up your own social site. Or you could look at uh, Planetary, which was launched uh, launched in the App Store just a, a week or so ago. That's another space that you can kind of curate your own experience. And so I think that that is possible. The thing that makes me think that it's a challenge for people to do that is I think that there are parts of social media that they get something out of it that you couldn't get from creating your own social site. You can communicate with a congressional representative, for example, as a constituent and creating your own social site that allows you to have that same contact and access is a, a challenging thing to think about. So I think it really depends on what your use is of social media and why you're going there that affects whether or not you can set up your own experience or not. Yes, I think we have to separate the technology from the network. So having the technology and the capability to set up your own is one thing, but then having that vast network is something entirely different. Thank you all for addressing that issue. So really, I think the, the public uh, frustration was with the fact that uh, various people and then one entire service, Parlor, were not given access to the resources and to the audiences they'd had access to very suddenly. And that's really gonna be the heart of our conversation today. And that leads us into another bit of the feedback we got after part one. Somebody wrote in and said, you know, these terms of services, they seem a little bit arbitrary. They talk about things that they will not tolerate on their platform, but what they'll tolerate from somebody relatively unknown or anonymous seems to be very different from what they'll tolerate from a president of the United States or a major Hollywood celebrity or something. Sherry, you wanna start the discussion on this and how does that work? How do these social media platforms get away with this variable uh, tolerance for what people post? Well, they get away with it because it's legal. They are private companies and they can make these determinations. Having said that, should they have some standards? Should there be some equity? I would say yes. And uh, we can look at an example, um, Iran's supreme leader. Why, why is Iran's supreme leader? Some people may ask uh, still on these networks, uh, uh, but other people are not. And so I think that there is a core issue there of having standards and applying them across the board. And we're not seeing that. And I do think that upsets some, some people. Another issue I think is this distinction between um, people who are in the public realm and people who are not. So if you talk about defamation, right, defamation of character, um, we have that in the laws in this country, but there's always been a distinction. If you are a very uh, public person, you're an elected official or a movie star, then for you to be defamed, the person has to be knowingly lying about you and there's a different standard. Uh, for instance, right now, we see that there was just a defamation suit filed by... Um, a very large company, Dominion, the, the voting machines, 1.3 billion against uh, Rudy Giuliani. 
So we, we do have uh, some of these laws that already apply, and we do have situations today where we are making distinctions. And I mean, I think the key to what you're saying there, Sherry, is that there is, it's on the books, there's transparency. We know that people are being treated differently. And I think that when it comes to the terms of service on some of these platforms, it's not altogether clear who gets to be treated differently. And I don't think we've had the conversation as well as I think we should of should people be treated differently? I mean, maybe maybe we should be having a, a, some conversation about how it should be fair for everyone. These are the rules, they apply to everyone. If you have children, uh, you, you know this well, rules are set, everyone has to abide by the rules. And if, if we don't want that to be the case, I think it needs to be transparent. And I don't think that that is the case. Being a parent, that's a great way to think about it. When, whenever you deviate the rules with, with one, chaos reigns. Uh, you know, I, I, Sherry, I love your point that, that many of these laws exist. Many of the laws already exist, right? Libel is, is illegal. You can be prosecuted for that. You can be prosecuted for defamation, right? There, I, I, I often look at these challenges and there are certainly frustrations given these challenges and there are certainly social questions and I think education questions for us to to really scrutinize and ask but but rather than rather than being frustrated with the the social networks and the companies frankly I I'm I'm actually a little bit more inclined to lean in on the government and and say the a lot of things a lot of things are said that are are already established to be wrong are already established to be illegal and and we're not doing enough to address that we're not doing enough to address the fact that on these on these sites on these platforms it's it's the source of what's said that is the problem not the medium on which it's said right and so so are we are we not following up properly? Are we not prosecuting sufficiently? Are we not, are we not implementing the laws that already exist, frankly, well, to, right. to deal with the fact libel. that a lot of people are doing things they shouldn't be doing? Yes. Seditious libel is already a law on the books. Exactly. And so this is a good question. And um, there are different aspects. How are we enforcing? And if not, how do we enforce uh, laws that we already have on the books, such as seditious libel? Where does the government come in versus the private companies. Are the private companies being transparent? It doesn't appear that way. And are they applying standards equally and equitably? That doesn't appear to be the case either. And then you get into the question, should, should the private companies be allowed to set their own standards? And if so, should we demand that they are equal? Or do you want government to step in? Just a couple of thoughts on this. Uh, the first is there is content circulating on the platforms for which there is no legal precedent, things like misinformation or really polarizing content. And I think that we need to be as concerned, if not potentially more concerned about that form of content that doesn't have a legal standard. And the other thing that I wanted to add is we're almost setting up this false dichotomy between is it government or business? And it doesn't have to be either of those. Uh, Facebook is trying with the oversight board. There are various opinions about how well that's working, but there are alternatives where you have some outside entity that's adjudicating some of these claims. And there, there are lots of, uh, of organizations and industries that have done this sort of move in the past. Uh, so I just want to be clear that there are more options on the table than the business doing it itself or government intervening. Oh, there, there clearly are. There are all kinds of professional associations, and that's an excellent point, whether it's the Government Accounting Standards Board um, and others that have set up 
professional standards of conduct and rules. And that certainly is um, one way um, that, that we could see a more equitable application here. And yes, Facebook now, right now as we're talking, the Facebook Oversight Board is looking at whether or not over the next 87 days, uh, Donald J. Trump should remain in exile from Facebook. Well, so let me get to the elephant in the room because that was great conversation on that topic, but now I'm dying to hear what you say on this next one. We all know that these social media platforms where you can, we know you can start one of your own that would start at small scale and be relatively inexpensive, but these companies that are billion plus user platforms have spent many billions of dollars in creating these platforms and tailoring them and optimizing them and enhancing the features. And their source of revenue is predominantly one thing. It's predominantly advertising, which means that their incentives are to have eyeballs and clicks. And there's been books written about this and the psychology of what goes into these interfaces and so on. And I'm sure some of you will talk about it. But I'd like you to talk about the dangers of private sector companies where it may be legal for them to have this power the dangers when the incentives don't always line up with social interest and how they can be expected to govern themselves and only really react against monetary incentives when there's tremendous civil unrest or some other major situation. Can you all start talking about that and share with our audience what the, what the realities are and how these social media companies work and what constrains them, if anything? Okay, the that's in the room. Go ahead, that's Sherry. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Jay, because what comes to mind with me, for instance, is if we look at pollution and environmental regulation, how well did it work for uh, big uh, manufacturing and oil production to self-regulate, right, as far as pollutants? Uh, I think that the jury's kind of out on that one. Self-regulation as far as the environment and um, the, the standards and the pollution in the air did not work very well. Is that to say that it can never work? No, but certainly um, there are pitfalls. What you're bringing up is not exactly self-regulation, but in a way it is because when you rely on advertising, that can um, cause you to um, do and keep up content um, to bring in that advertising revenue. On the other hand, if we, as we've seen lately, there have been some big companies that have said, if you do not do something about this content, the misinformation that Talia spoke of or, or other uh, content, then we're going to pull our advertising dollars. I, I, I think it's the elephant in the room because, uh, I, I, you know, as I sort of implied as we started the conversation, I'm a, I'm a huge student of, of the history of media. Ye yellow journalism is what we used to call fake news. Yellow journalism existed in the late 1800s thanks to William Randolph Hearst and, and newspaper publishers who did the exact same thing that we're talking about 120 years later. <laughs> There's, there is nothing new in the world today with regard to what we're experiencing on social media. And every form of media has had it. Uh, the, radio, the radio era in music had what we called payola when the, the private musician and radio industry would, would pay to make sure certain artists got more exposure. Um, what, you know, I think that's an important discourse. It's why, it's why too, I touch on education quite a bit. We, we've not 
we've not quickly enough figured out how to, to raise our next generation of people to understand how the internet works, what the implications of social media are, and to, to do the same thing that we all learned when we grew up with newspapers and television, which is don't believe everything you hear and don't believe everything you see, right? That, that we now live in a generation where everybody's on Twitter and Facebook and because so-and-so said it must be true. Well, that's, that's never been true. <laughs> it's never been accurate. And, and, and so what, what, what it, what's changed that, that enables us to say, yes, but now it must be so. Now, now it must be so that the only thing that's online has to be correct and accurate and consistent with my views. My, my concern is really just that it's a slippery slope, right? Who, who decides? Who determines, right? Because we may be thrilled that we may be thrilled that Trump was banned, but there's a new president now. And what if that president gets banned for whatever reason somebody decides to ban that one, right? Are we just going to flip-flop on, on who determines who gets a say in, in these matters? Social media is just, a, it's just a platform. The challenge we have to deal with is the fact that anybody can say it. That's the subtle difference, right? That, that when it was the newspaper publishers and those advertisers, there was an editor. There was someone deciding what could be said. Well, as we talked about in the last podcast, I think Sherry said that different rules apply to the news media than apply to social media. And so it's probably good to remind our listeners, based on the conversation you two just had, what are the different rules that apply to news media and to social media, if any rules apply there? Yes. So what we talked about was uh, Section 230, the Communications Decency Act. And this is really important. It says no provider or user of any interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And so that is a big distinction with social media versus what we're calling the, the traditional media. That um, the Communications Decency Act allows social media to pace to, to place good faith restrictions on um, material, but it really puts social media in a very different category from the traditional media. Yeah, I think that that's uh, important to distinguish between what happens on social media and what happens on, on traditional media. And, you know, we had rules in place for traditional media back in the day, like a fairness doctrine that was based on limited availability of of, of you to get your voice out, right? The, the, the spectrum is limited. And that same thing is certainly not true online, right? Everyone has access, everyone's voice can be there. So there are, there are reasons that social media might be treated differently than traditional media, whether we buy those, I think is a matter of debate, but there are differences. And going back um, Jay, to your earlier point and building a bit, Paul, on what you said, I, I just want to give a plus one to the idea that education is so important here. And it's not only young people. There was a study that was done um, where they were looking at who shared uh, fake news most, most frequently, and it was actually older populations that were more likely to do so. So I think it's kind of education for all of us. This is a new, a new medium and a new space. And then on the point about algorithms and the incentives of these companies, my collaborator Eli Pariser and I often are talking about uh, user-friendly design versus public-friendly design. And user-friendly design is often where the platforms are playing right now. They wanna maximize things so that you as an individual have a good experience. 
But that can run afoul of social goals. If what maximizes your experience as an individual is really racist and polarizing content, you know, maybe you stay longer, maybe you're, you're there all the time and they get to expose you to more advertising. But if we think of that from a social framework, is that really what we want to maximize on these platforms? And I think that that's a conversation worth having because the incentive structure, as you mentioned, Jay, is advertising, which means I maximize the amount of time you spend, not how do I make the world a better place? That's a different set of motivations. Yeah, there's the rub is, is that it becomes a, it becomes a somewhat subjective uh, determination as to who is responsible and who's accountable for what exists on social media. I mean, subjective in the sense that, you know, should the company be responsible for what other people say? That's, uh, you know, that's just, that's dangerous. I just want us to be pragmatic about demanding that, not, not, not saying, no, they shouldn't be involved and, and, and no, there shouldn't be some sort of policy. Just, just that it's, it's somewhat, somewhat dangerous because there's a cost there, right? There's a risk there. There's a liability there. It, it will handicap our economy. If we suddenly say every website out there must be responsible for what anybody says on every website, Ooh, who's, how's that going to be handled? Well, so let me, let me address that a little bit here because we want to close this with recommendations and I'm going to get part of the way there now. So Sherry has shared that, you know, news publications, the, the fourth estate, if you will, they've, they've had expectations and uh, protection, but requirements as well on them. Uh, scientific journals have peer review processes. Some sectors like Sherry brought up environmental regulations are governed by regulations because they're known that they won't regulate themselves on that. And these large uh, public, uh, publicly traded, but, but private sector companies are responsible you know, to their shareholders at some level, they're trying to optimize revenue. So they appear to not have the regulations that Sherry brought up with the analogy of environmental regulations. They appear not to have some of the same regulations that apply to the news media. So, and, and yet they're private sector platforms that have been allowed to grow. And Paul, I agree with you on section 230 at some level, but we have to evaluate, does, does that make sense? Would Thomas Jefferson have said that you shouldn't be held responsible for what somebody says on your platform, if he could have anticipated that well over two centuries later, there'd be a platform that enabled you to say that to billions of people. So that's good. That's my lead in to your recommendations. What do you think we should do? What should we do to account for the fact that the platforms that get to billion plus scale are private sector platforms that leverage those kinds of resources and incentives but yet have less regulation than many other aspects of society and thus more potential to do what we saw happen recently and go extremely negative and contribute to very negative things. You know, what, what should we do? I, you know, I think even the EPA and environmental protections consideration is actually a good one. What, what would Jefferson have said? Hey, who knows? <laughs> but I think, I think the EPA consideration is actually... Uh, maybe just a good one to put my perspective in context, which is that, uh, you know, the, the, the EPA isn't, isn't holding the company responsible for my dumping nuclear waste, nu nuclear, wa nuclear waste, <laughs> right? It's, 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 still, it's still holding the party responsible for the crime accountable or, or uh, responsible in some way. And, and the rub here, rub here is that, you know, that's, that's a substantial challenge. 
it, it, it really is just a substantial challenge that it's going to require either technology, artificial intelligence technology, or an army of people to police everything that people put on Facebook in order to prevent anything from, from being inappropriate. And I'm not saying that's not the right approach. I'm just, I'm just encouraging the more pragmatic, more, more measured deliberation of this through government because the big difference between our earlier discussion of government and business, of course, at, at least in my mind, is the government's ultimately the one that makes the rules and can enforce them. Right. They, they, they have the means of prosecution. Companies don't. Companies can just kick you off. So, so once government decides, it's, it's a little bit more socially impactful than are not liking Facebook and just needing an alternative. So, so what do we do? I, I think the, the most important thing we do is we collectively invest more in education. I, I, re, I really am passionate, passionate about that, that the average citizen today desperately needs to just understand how the internet works because it's the way our economy works now. And, and, and the better part of the implication of our economy is the fact that it's social, that's social media. We must teach people how this works. Uh, number one, I absolutely support the idea of a regulatory body of some kind. Now, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to know how well that, that gets implemented and, and upheld to. I know someone like Sherry is, uh, but, but I absolutely support that because we do need some sort of governance, not necessarily government, but governance of, of the implications here and what it means. And I, and I think that's important because not only do we have to educate the citizens, but we have to educate the legislator, le legislator, le legislators, <laughs> frankly, right? In order for them to properly debate and discuss and, and consider what it is that we're working with here, people have to be involved in, in honestly and pragmatically and openly educating them on both sides of, of the questions and, and enabling them to keep us safe, but at the same time, keep us free. So, Paul, following up on what you said, actually, um, I, along with a colleague of mine, Ken Fleischman, who's at the School of Information at the University of Texas at Austin, have proposed a policy and a policy paper for public interest, public interest technology, the day one project. And what we propose is establishing an independent agency that we are calling the FAIR Artificial Intelligence Research and Regulation Bureau. And yes, the acronym is FAIR, F-A-I-R-R, and the research mission would be modeled on the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute created through the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, and whose policy mission would be modeled on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau created through the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. And it would have um, independent um, people appointed from industry, from government, from academia, all kinds of experts. And it would call attention to the importance of the need to provide adverse action notices when using AI models. I'm not gonna get too into the weeds, but it could serve as a coordinated multi-sector and interdisciplinary hub for education and outreach regarding the fair and equitable use of AI. And it could apply to all federal and state and local governments and private and nonprofit sectors. And it could look at application areas such as um, sentencing recommendations when we talk about criminal justice and social media. Uh, I love that idea of an independent organization that has some, some say in this. Uh, Jay, you brought up uh, Jefferson, and uh, I think it's an interesting person to think about because after all, he was the one that developed the National Gazette, the very, very partisan newspaper to try to counteract 
uh, Hamilton's Gazette paper back in the early days. And so he was involved in giving them scoops and really trying to fan the flames of partisanship in his favor via the media. So I, I am skeptical about his uh, uh, intentions to say, oh, the media should uh, have some sort of regulation as part of it or should be rid of partisanship in some way because he certainly didn't act in line with that. And I think that that is actually the essential problem of thinking through all of this is whoever has an oversight over these sorts of questions, we need to think about what their motive is. If it's government, there can be a partisan motive there. If it's business, there can be an economic motive there. So I think that these ideas and rationales for something external, whether that's an organization consisting of experts or whether it's something that draws from the idea, for example, of a deliberative poll, where people, a cross-section of people that are randomly selected are paid well to come together to debate these questions and come up with an answer at the end of the day with access to expertise and access to information. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not clear on what the best path is on the way forward, but I do think that the underlying point I wanna make is that without having people who are disinterested or at least balancing out what the interests are that are part of an external panel, I'm concerned about the effect that that would have overall. So I, I think if I can almost summarize uh, way too concisely what you all have shared here is that there's going to be problems as long as human beings are involved, whether it's business run social media platforms, whether it's governments that have different political parties and different people participating, et cetera. So uh, well, point well taken. So we know that our system has various checks and balances. We, we saw them all get tested quite recently in, in one fashion. Um, sometimes we fail these tests in business and in governments. M more often than not, we pass. When we fail, we tend to change things and try to find ways to improve things. And so here at the beginning of 2021, and I would say we're still at the beginning of the year, as we look forward and think, how are we gonna make this a great year? What are your final thoughts on what we can do to make usage of social media better, fairer, more equitable, more positive, more constructive? Paul, we'll start with you. Believe it or not, this might be my favorite advice for, for Austin in general. Go outside. Go outside and take a breath. Because social media is biased and it is going to influence your opinions. And the best thing we can do for one another is to give our minds a break. These have mental health implications that we've not talked about, which might make a great future discussion here. Uh, these platforms definitely influence our perspective. And you know what happens when we go outside and we just talk to people? We, we, tend, to, we tend to listen a little bit more. We tend to think a little bit more. We tend to smile at each other a little bit more and realize that, yes, as long as people are involved, we're going to keep messing it up. <laughs> so, so let's live our lives and, and see one another and, and, and trust, trust that we will figure it out. We will figure it out, right? These these media challenges, as we've talked about, be it be it Jefferson or or yellow journalism, just a, a hundred or so years ago, they're not going to go away. We're going to continue to have them. Uh, and the best thing we all can do is just talk to one another a little bit more face to face and and have honest conversations, knowing that we come from different walks of life and different perspectives that we're going to have to talk about in order to figure out how to live through this. Happy to jump in here. Uh, I hate to be the academic that says we need more research because everyone will roll their eyes at me and I totally get that. But 
I'm going to be the academic that says, I think we need more research, but I think it's in this space, very different from many, many spaces we've seen in the past because the data are housed in private companies that have elected in many instances not to share with university researchers. There have in fact been instances where these mega companies go after individual academics for, uh, for example, violating terms of service or even more ambiguous charges to try to get them not to do the research. And that's really scary. If we have business institutions holding so closely onto data that has a fundamental, a potentially fundamental impact on our lives and won't allow academics to have access to have at least some transparency in what's happening there. I think that this is like a, a much bigger deal in thinking about the need for research than many, many other areas. And so I think from this perspective, the more we can encourage big tech to share data so that people can actually find out what's going on there, even the basic facts. We don't even know, for instance, a rough estimate, how much misinformation circulated on these platforms. We frankly don't know that. And they know inside of these companies. So I think that that's one part of it. I think that government needs to very, very carefully think about research before acting in this space. If the idea is that breaking apart companies will then reduce the amount of misinformation, is that really the case? We already see people that want to spread misinformation very easily going from one platform to another. So if that's the ultimate goal and that's the strategy, are they really in line with each other? And then the final thing is for just people out there when you get invited to be part of research, yes, check it out. Make sure that it's a legitimate academic enterprise. Make sure that your data is going to be handled carefully, securely, that you'll, your privacy will be protected. But I urge you to take part. We need to find out what's happening on these platforms so then we can do better at building regulations so that we can understand more what the effects on society are. And I think all of us can play a role by sharing what we're seeing on these platforms. Even the ads that we're seeing, we don't know what people what people see and don't see because the companies don't always share what ads they posted that could be very micro-targeted. So lots of opportunities, I think, at all levels to get involved and sorry to be that academic. Talia, if you're sorry to be the, the academic, then I guess I'm sorry to be the policy person as a, as a law, someone who has a history in policy and yes, a long suffering recovering politician. I say seize the moment, seize the moment. Education is important. Um, certainly the repercussions that uh, Paul was talking about with Facebook and depression are important. Uh, Talia, with you talking about um, people going into the dark corners, that's important. But I really believe that we need to seize the moment, that we need to make sure that we have fair, accountable, transparent, and ethical situation, and uh, that we need standards and we need a broad-based panel of some type of experts across the spectrum. Those were three fantastic summary points. Sherry, I, I, I couldn't agree more. We, we do need to uh, seize the moment. We need to enact proper policies that help guide this, but that has to be driven by what Paul and Talia said. Uh, Talia said more research is needed, and this will be an area of constant, continuous research. As these platforms evolve, they grow in scale. Um, there are uh, implications at scale that don't happen for smaller scale platforms and discussions. So research there will be needed as they change their algorithms for how to target ads and how to change what you see in your feed. And they optimize for uh, eyeballs and clicks. Research is needed to see what kinds of effects that have, and that will guide the policies you were talking about. And Paul, thank you for saying what you said you said go outside and talk, probably in a pandemic, it's best to go outside and talk about this or online as we're doing. But 
it, it certainly, this is what the Austin Forum is all about. We want to facilitate these conversations. We want to stimulate our listeners to go have those conversations, read, learn, follow the research, understand the policies, be a part of this. Know what you're sharing before you share it. Know was it credible. Uh, try to find out what's going on here. Um, make sure you are responsible individually about it. And that you can do by being part of the conversation and having these conversations with informed people. And we hope that uh, you valued this podcast with these three very informed people. So with that, we will wrap this up. Thank you all for participating in this part two of this podcast. I have a feeling we're going to get some requests to continue this conversation at future dates. I hope uh, you all are willing to do that as we explore that a little bit downstream. But thank you all for joining us on the Austin Forum Upload. Thanks for listening to the Austin Forum Upload. You can listen to additional episodes and check out a schedule of our monthly in-person events at austinforum.org. The Upload is a production of the Austin Forum on Technology and Society, a nonprofit organization here in Austin, Texas.